Before I read God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we, we acknowledge what we just sang, that there is a feebleness to our frame, and, and we know it. We know it when we come before your word, because there's a, a frailty of understanding. And, Lord, there's a feebleness of our own attention spans. We can often be distracted by other things, other people, other sounds, other sights. Father, I pray that you would give us a holy attentiveness, that the Holy Spirit would come upon us and transfix our hearts and minds upon the truths of your word. Lord, take away whatever may, may cause our minds to wander. Father, I do pray for the young children of this church that they would hear the word and that you would minister to their souls this morning. I pray for parents in the pews who are parenting and seeking to instruct their children right this very moment that even those parents would be able to worship without distraction. Father, I pray for those, Lord, who are weary, for those who are hungry, for those whose priorities have caused their bodies perhaps to be in this room but their hearts to be far away. Focus us all upon your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please take out your copy of God's word. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 11. If you're using the Bible in your row, uh, it's on page 1007. If you don't have a copy of God's Word or you don't have one that you find is readable, I think this is a very readable English version, you're welcome to take that Bible home with you and use it as our gift. Uh, for those who are visiting here, it's our practice as a congregation to work verse by verse through a book of the Bible. So probably uh, 45 out of 52 Sundays a year, we're doing that. We're just working verse by verse, saying to God, what do you want to teach us? And we've been doing that with the book of Hebrews for about nine months now, and we're in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is the most famous chapter in Hebrews. It's a favorite chapter for many. Um, it's the, sometimes called the Hall of Faith. It's, it's remembering Old Testament saints who were in different ways exemplary in their faith. Now, they were not perfect. Every one of them had sins in different ways. Every one of them made poor decisions. And yet, they had faith that caused them to persevere in following the Lord Jesus. It's helpful to look at this chapter because we get to see pictures of the lives of these Old Testament saints. And faith is as much caught as taught in a lot of ways. And so seeing their lives and remembering the stories often can galvanize us and strengthen us in our faith. And today we come to the character that takes up the most of, of Hebrews 11, the most space, and that's the character Abraham. Abraham's a fascinating character. Jews, Muslims, and Christians all trace our, our faith back to Abraham in various ways. And yet, it's the New Testament that holds the strongest connection to Abraham and that's because all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, uh, just a couple of chapters after that call of Abraham that I read in our Old Testament reading, Abraham displays for us that great tenet of the gospel, faith alone. If we were to keep reading to Genesis 15 verse 6, God has just made Abraham amazing and hard to believe promises. And we're told in Genesis 15 6, Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. That's amazing to think of, Abraham was righteous, because just a few chapters before, Abraham lied and deceived Pharaoh. 
He, he, he put his own needs before those of his wife. He put his wife at risk. And you think, this guy is faithful? Yes, because of faith in Christ, Abraham was pronounced faithful. He was pronounced righteous. That's why you come to the New Testament, Galatians 3, verse 7, and the Apostle Paul says, Know then that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. That's why Matthew 1, the first book of the New Testament, opens talking about Abraham, and it shows us how the Lord Jesus fits into the genealogy of Abraham. Get rid of any idea that salvation in the Old Testament worked any differently than salvation in the New Testament. It was always through faith in Christ. And Abraham, in the eyes of the New Testament authors, is the archetype of what faith in Christ looks like. So look with me now at God's word, Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As you can imagine, preparing to preach on a character as big and as significant, biblically speaking and historically speaking, as Abraham means that my study over the last few weeks took me pretty, pretty far and wide. And as I was studying, I came across a verse that I think has become Stephanie in my life verse. It's from Genesis chapter 18, and it's talking about when Sarah was 90 years old, her husband was nearly a century old, and God tells her within a year she will conceive of a child. And this is a great verse, isn't it? Sarah's response was, I'm worn out and my husband is old. That is our life verse. That is us in a nutshell right there. And of course, God provided they raised Isaac, the child of the promise. We're going to focus on that next time. But today I want to focus on the whole scope of Abraham's life as a life of faith, a journey of faith. It was not a life of perfection. But the general trajectory, the general desire of Abraham's life was to walk by faith. And, you know, that was no easy thing for him. Abraham became, uh, in a sense, a man without a home. 
He became a, a sojourner. He became a, a stranger. He spent most of his life not knowing where God would lead him. He, he spent his life trusting God's promises, even when those promises were not fully realized in his lifetime. And Hebrews is going to tell us how he could do that. Look at verse 10 again. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's how we walk by faith, beloved. To journey to this city that our eyes can't see, but we, we behold with faith this city whose designer and builder is God. I want you to see four things as we make our way through this text. First, we'll look at faith's call. Second, faith's crisis. Third, faith's conduct. And then fourth, faith's confidence. Look first at faith's call. And if you were to go back in the book of Genesis, back before chapter 12 where you really meet Abraham, you would see a lineage that traces back to Noah. Noah and his sons and their wives survive the flood and they start to repopulate the earth. And so Genesis 10 and 11, you, you get the genealogies of Noah's sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their sons and their sons. And you get actually 70 descendants of Noah. And so if you write it out, the family tree is starting to get pretty broad. But as you come to the end of that list... God, in his sovereign wisdom, begins to narrow back down to one family, way, way, way down Noah's family line. It's so far down the, time, the family line that we don't get any impression that they really even knew the stories of the flood. They didn't really know the stories of how God had rescued them. Their land, they're living in a land called Ur of the Chaldeans. They're worshiping pagan gods. This is where we meet a man named Terah, and Terah has three sons, Nahor, Haran, and Abram, who would be renamed Abraham, and Abraham and his offspring become the focal point of the rest of the Bible. Now, our knowledge about Abraham extends back to the 19th century. The best we can tell, Ur was located on the Euphrates in what is today southern Iraq, it was already an ancient city by Abraham's time. It had an elaborate system of writing. It was, had sophisticated mathematic uh, systems, educational facilities, and extensive business and religious life. The city was dominated by a massive three-stage ziggurat built by King Ernamu during the beginning of the second millennium B.C. Each stage was colored distinctively. The top level bore the one-room shrine to Namu, the, the, the moon god. The royal cemetery there reveals that ritual burials were practiced through child sacrifice. Can you imagine a culture that on the one hand was so advanced and so civilized and on the other hand made a practice of killing its own children? It's not that hard, is it? See, Ur, as advanced, uh, advanced as it was, was nevertheless in the bonds of darkest paganism. You know, this reminds us never to mistake civilization for progress. 
a culture doesn't truly progress till it turns to the living God. And so as we meet Abraham here, there's nothing faithful about him or his family. Joshua 24 verse 2 tells us explicitly that Abraham and his family were idolaters. They were not following Yahweh. They were not following the God of the Bible, and that's really important. Because sometimes you look at a guy like Abraham and you think, you know, God must have called him because something was special about Abraham. There must have been something unique about him amongst all the other people. That's not it at all. The scriptures really go to great lengths to tell us it is nothing about Abraham that that caused God to call Abraham. It was God's sovereign choice. It was God's sovereign election. You see, God doesn't scan the earth looking for good people that he'll call he doesn't scan the earth and look for those who will who will choose him one day and then he chooses us abraham is the recipient of god's sovereign election see that's how grace works if grace was based on on something in me then it's not grace it's works grace is based on god's sovereign choice and that's what we see in Abraham here. You know, there's a hymn in our hymnal, and it goes like this. Tis not that I did choose thee, O Lord, that could not be. This heart should still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. God chose Abraham. God called Abraham by God's own sovereign choice and not because of anything good in him. And God spoke into Abraham's heart by the Holy Spirit, and then Abraham followed God on this journey out of Ur and towards the promised land. We've got to understand this call of Abraham is all God's doing. What Genesis tells us about Abraham's call historically, Ephesians actually explains to us theologically. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. Ephesians is explaining how it is that anybody comes to saving faith in the Lord. Including Abraham. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is Abraham's condition when God called him. This is your condition when God called you. And if you're not a Christian, then this is still your condition. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Abraham's in that list. If you're a Christian, you were in that list. If you're not a Christian at this point, then you are in that list. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when Abraham was dead in his uh, trespasses, even when Alex was dead in his trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so the call that we see here historically with Abraham, we understand theologically in the New Testament as the sovereign work of God's Spirit in Abraham. Abraham is not only the exemplar of faith, but he teaches us that faith is 
the sovereign work of God in our hearts whereby he seeks us and he saves us even when, like Abraham, we were seeking after false gods. True faith, the kind Abraham had, is faith in Christ. That's Abraham's call. Now, I think it's easy for us to read this story and not realize the inner turmoil that Abraham would have experienced. I think it's because we know how the story ends. We know the character of God. We know the whole of the scriptures. We know how God protected and blessed and provided for Abraham. But, you know, if we step back into Abraham's shoes back in in Genesis chapter 12, and he's just you know, out of nowhere confronted and called by this God, we've got to realize it's, it's an internal crisis for Abraham. And so the second thing I want you to see is, is faith's crisis. We don't know what, if anything, Abraham knew about this God of the Bible. His family was serving false gods. And so he probably had not heard the stories of how Noah had been saved. He had not heard the stories of the garden, or if he had heard them, he added them in his mind to that whole pantheon of gods that are out there. But we know that that Abraham had spent his life uh, growing up, bowing down and worshiping Namu. And so this call from God uh, creates a crisis in Abraham. Will I continue to follow after the gods of my fathers, the gods of my brothers, the gods of all my friends? Will I follow after the God of this land? Or will I follow after this God who unexpectedly and inexplicably has spoken to me? In those days, uh, probably everyone on earth was polytheistic. They, They served lots of gods. Abraham might have never met a monotheist before this. And it wasn't so much following Yahweh that that was going to create a crisis for Abraham as much as it was turning away from all other gods. This would be, not only was he leaving his father's land, but he was leaving his father's gods, his grandfather's gods, and so on. See, there's, there's two sides to God's call. Yes, there is the call to follow, but the flip side of that coin is the call to repentance, We follow by faith, but that necessarily involves repenting of following any other gods of this world. Abraham wasn't the last man to face that crisis. Will I follow this God of the Bible or will I keep following the gods of this world? Everyone who has ever contemplated Christianity has been faced with that crisis. You know, your brothers and sisters in the early church were martyred. Not because they served Jesus, but because they served Jesus only and refused to render worship to Caesar. But that's evidence of true faith, not just to say that this God is real, that Jesus Christ is Savior, but that all other gods are false gods and to turn from them. That's a crisis for a polytheist like Abraham, and that's a crisis for us today who are surrounded by the false gods of this world. 
Now look with me at 1 Thessalonians for a moment. The, the Thessalonians, like Abraham, were once pagans living in the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. The city was, was not only committed to the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, but they also worshipped Egyptian idols for good measure as well, just in case those might help. But they heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit applied the gospel to their hearts, just as he did Abraham's. And listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9. I want you to see the evidence that their faith is real. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, Paul says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's, that's evidence of true faith. We don't just accept Jesus on top of all of our other gods. We turn and serve him only. And that's a crisis. It was a crisis for Abraham. Let me tell you how the church has tried to get around this, particularly in recent years, how churches in the Western world have tried to get around this. We proclaim things like this. Jesus loves you and he has a perfect plan for your life and he offers you eternal life. You know what we don't tell him? You've got to turn from all those false gods of this world and follow him only. It's not Jesus plus this world. It's Jesus only, and so when we tell the world about Jesus' love, but we don't tell the world about following him only, we're selling them a bill of goods. We're telling them, you can have Jesus and all the world's gods. And what that's produced in the church today is a lot of Christians, a lot of professing Christians who say they love Jesus, but they love the gods of this world a whole lot more. And so flowing into this church is this lukewarm artesian well of people who think Jesus is just all right with me as long as he doesn't ask me to give up any of my other gods. Try that one with your wife. I like you, but I like lots of other women as well. Jesus does not welcome us into such a relationship. When we come to faith in Christ, it ought to be a crisis because we are turning our backs on everything else. That's the story of the rich young ruler that that Pastor Walton read uh, just a little while ago in our call to confession. He's a good guy. He's an influential guy. But do you remember how that story goes? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, I did that. Jesus wants to show him he didn't, that he's guilty both of covetousness and idolatry. So Jesus says to him, go, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus is intentionally bringing the man to a crisis. What's important to me? Is it important to me to have Jesus or is my stuff more important? I was talking with some men about this passage earlier this week and Brian Nygaard's always so thought-provoking and he said, you know, at the heart of this passage, at the heart of, of Hebrews chapter 11, as we think about Abraham, the question is, what do you want? What do you want? What do I want? Do I want the idols of this world? Do I want the world with its stuff? Or do I want Jesus? Now what's fascinating about that is if I collect all of this world's idols, if I literally have it all, it will not be enough for me. But if all I have is Jesus, then I have more than enough. Giving up the old life 
is one of the greatest obstacles to becoming a Christian, and it's one of the greatest obstacles to, to faithful living once we are in Christ, because Jesus does not share the throne, because only he deserves the throne. Don't downplay the crisis this was for Abraham, and it should be as much of a crisis for you and me because you and me constantly have the gods of this world knocking on the door of our heart, sometimes knocking from the outside, sometimes knocking from within. And to follow Christ is to commit yourself to a life of perpetual repentance and killing those idols until the day that Christ takes us home. Repentance is not a one-time act, but it's a lifetime of killing those idols so I can follow Christ and him only. That's faith's crisis. I'm going to ask you, is Jesus worth it? Are you content with a lukewarm Christianity where you can give a head nod to Christ and you're, you're happy with him as long as he doesn't start to mess with your idols? There is no such Jesus. Christ demands all because Christ deserves all. That's faith's crisis. Once we've faced that crisis and committed ourselves to follow him and him only, we come to the third thing here, and that's faith's conduct. The crisis that happened inside Abraham led to something that happened outside Abraham. His life of faith began with immediate obedience. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went out. Abraham's experience of meeting and believing God produced in him an act of immediate radical obedience. Martin Luther says it's clear that with his obedience of faith, Abraham gives us a supreme example of an evangelical life, a life that gets the gospel because he left everything and followed the Lord, preferring the word of God to everything and loving it above everything. This is faith's conduct. Faith lives in radical obedience. Faith and obedience are inseparable in man's relationship with God. Abraham would never have obeyed had he not had faith in what God had promised. Abraham's obedience was an outworking of his inward faith. The text goes on, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. There's a glorious element of childlike faith in Abraham. He went not because it made sense to him, or because it was going to be easy for him, but because God had commanded it from him. I don't know where I'm going, but if you're leading, I'll follow. His obedience was so prompt that the Greek seems to indicate as soon as God's word was spoken, Abraham's packing up tent. He's ready to go. Charles Spurgeon writes, there is no hint of hesitation or delay. When he was called to go out, he went out. And Spurgeon says this should be the norm for Christians today, and yet so often it is not. The Abrahams of today will not go out from their kindred. They will, they'll put up with anything other than losing the, risking losing their livelihoods. And if they do go out, they want to know where they're going and what there is to gain from that new country. 
Abraham didn't get any of that, and yet he obeyed. He was prepared for instant obedience to any command God made of him. His journey was appointed, and he left. He was commanded to leave the country, and he left it. He left his friends. He did it all at God's command. Now, as an early application, let me ask you, brothers and sisters, what aspect of your life have you refused to yield obedience to God? Either something that thus far you have clearly been commanded to do in the scriptures and you've not done it, you've been afraid to obey, you've you've come up with excuses not to obey, or you've failed to turn away from a sin that the scriptures command you not to do. You haven't fought that sin. You haven't aimed to put that sin to death. Listen to Spurgeon again. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Continued delay of duty is continuous sin. If I do not obey the divine command, I sin. If you read a command of scripture and say, I'll get to that later. I'll I'll, I'll tithe once I'm able. I'll start keeping the Sabbath holy once I have more time on my hand. Whatever, Whatever it is. I'll I'll pursue a life of sexual purity once I'm married. It is sin to delay obedience. This is a serious matter. If a certain act is your duty this moment and you leave it undone, you have sinned and it remains sin until you obey. Spurgeon says obedience is faith's conduct. Well, finally, I want you to see faith's confidence. What compels a man to pick up everything and follow a God he just met? What compels a man to follow when he's not told where he's going? What compels a man to move to a land that he doesn't know where he'll spend his life as a stranger and an alien? What compels him to give up all comforts and ease that he had known in his life settled there in Haran? He did it because God promised him something better. We saw this back in verse 1 of chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And that word assurance, it could be translated superstructure. God's promises created for Abraham's heart, for Abraham's faith, a superstructure a foundation on which his faith could rest. If God has promised it, then it's as good as true. It's as good as done because of God's word. Look at verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The the Greek there literally, literally reads, the city that had the foundations. In the midst of Abraham's wanderings, what compelled him all along the way was the hope of a city that would never crumble. It would never sink into the ground. You know, I think when Abraham thought of a city, the quintessential mega city, metropolitan city after the flood was Babel. That's really where civilization recommenced after the flood. It was to be a great city with the great tower as a sign of its glory. Now, God confused the languages and the people were scattered. Scripture doesn't tell us what happened to the Tower of Babel and to the city of Babel after that. 
but legend among the people of Babylon was that that once mighty city, it, it was built on sand and it sank into the sand. It disappeared because it didn't have foundations. It didn't have that superstructure. And so when it says Abraham looked for the city that had the foundations, I think it's against the backdrop of Babel there. Reminding Abraham, you know, the greatest city this world has ever built will one day crumble to the ground. So Abraham, you need, to long, you need to long for and live for and hope for a city that has the foundations because the city built by God will never crumble. And so Abraham set the eyes of his faith on the city that has the foundations designed in God's mind and built by God's hand. One that will never crumble, but it's an eternal city. So Abraham left Ur not so much for Canaan, but for a heavenly city that was to be revealed later, that he would inherit later. That's what Abraham was seeking. Look at verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. In other words... If Abraham, if his desire were an earthly city, he would have wandered around Canaan a little bit. He would have said, you know, this really isn't a home for me, so I'm going to go back. By the way, that sounds a lot like the people in the Church of the Hebrews here that are starting to say, life's getting hard. We're not seeing immediate payoffs of following Christ. We're going to leave. Ah, if it had been an option to leave, if Abraham's desire had been an earthly city, he would have grown content being a discontent being a, a resident alien in Canaan, and he would have gone back. But Abraham desired a better country. He, his confidence was in this promise of God of a heavenly country, and he was confident in that. Listen to Philo of Alexander. Philo of Alexander was a Jewish philosopher, lived in the century before the birth of Christ. He said of Abraham, Abraham considered things not present as beyond question already present, by reason of the sure steadfastness of him that promised them. In other words, Abraham's saying, it's a done deal. I may not have seen this heavenly city. I may not have realized it in this earthly life, but it's a done deal because the one who promised it is faithful. Understanding that confidence in the heavenly city, it opens up to us all of Hebrews 11. You know, look at, look at the people we meet in Hebrews 11. Look down to verse 35. Look at some of the people we're going to meet in the next couple of months studying this chapter. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may, uh, might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. How do we gladly suffer for the sake of Christ? It only happens when our chief longing is for the city with foundations. That was Abraham's confidence. That's how he and others could walk through life as strangers and aliens because this world was not their home. Their real address was in heaven. 
I want you to imagine staying in a hotel room for a weekend. And you look around, you get there Friday night, and you think, you know, this place is nice, but it could use some upgrades. You call your, your banker and say, I want to borrow a million dollars to fix up this hotel room. That's an absolutely ridiculous idea, right? Because it's so temporary. Y- your real address is elsewhere. You don't invest your life into something that within a couple of days is going to be done. It's going to be gone from you. You and me live as strangers and aliens, awaiting our true home. And true believers can't go back. We go forward to the city whose builder is God. Paul tells us in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. He tells us in Ephesians that we are no longer strangers and aliens but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Yes, you are at odds with this world, but you are at home in God's house. One commentator said, we are supernaturalized citizens. Our citizenship is not only with one another, but it's rooted in heaven. It's like Bunyan, John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress. Once you've caught sight of the celestial city, you can never be content with anything less than that. We sing that sometimes. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Like Abraham, believers look for and live for the the city whose builder is God, and we look at this world and we say, this world has nothing to offer me because God has given me everything I need in this future city. Abraham didn't receive it all in this life. In fact, what he died with, what possession he died with was a burial plot for his bride. But he didn't feel God had had failed him. He knew that his true inheritance was the heavenly city that was infinitely more glorious than any earthly city could ever be. Beloved, this needs to be our confidence as well. This world is temporary. We cannot hold on to it. And our life here is a mist and a vapor in comparison with eternity with God. And so let us invest our lives and live our lives for that city in which we will dwell forever. That city where we will see God face to face. How do we apply this text? First, I just want to challenge you to inspect your heart regularly to see what idols of this world are you're clinging to. If we're not constantly killing our idols, if we're not constantly turning our back on them, they will begin to find a place in our heart. There's a version of Christianity, pseudo-Christianity, that professes faith in Christ but does not live for Christ because the world has such a grip on it talks the talk but does not walk the walk beloved let that not be true of us look at the idols of your life and every time they start to to sprout up pull them up yank them out and say this heart belongs to jesus alone second we need to intentionally focus less on the world around us, and more on the world to come. 
so much Christian service is avoided because of discontentment. You're discontent with your job. You're con- discontent in your relationships. You're discontent in your town. You're discontent in your calling. You're discontent in your church, wherever it is. And it, it paralyzes so many people that they become ineffective. They become useless for the sake of the kingdom. If this were different, then I would be diligent. If this were different, then I would be making disciples. But until that changes, I'm just going to sit here doing what I'm doing. Beloved, there is no ideal place to serve God except for the place where he has set you right now. This is the place, this is the time where you are to serve him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You know, that's why grumbling is so sinful in Scripture, because it shows the condition of a heart that is fixed on this world rather than the world to come. If your heart and your eyes are fixed on the world to come, you have nothing to complain about. Our grumbling is always because we get so fixated on this world. We must be careful and uh, intentional to focus our hearts and our minds more on the world to come and less on this world. So as we journey down the broken road of life and we wait for our true home, let us frequently think of the Lord Jesus and meditate upon him whom John tells us we shall one day see him as he is. Gone will be the veil of flesh that, that hid him from the people and we will see him in his glorified body as he is and we will praise him as we ought. Fix your gaze upon heaven. Pray heaven. Sing heaven. Study heaven. Encourage others towards heaven. Make thoughts of heaven, our true city, such a part of the culture of First Scots that we can say with great confidence to one another, Yes, brother, I know life is hard. Yes, sister, I know you're struggling. But look to that world which is to come because it is coming. And when he comes, you and I will pull up a seat next to Abraham at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will rejoice with joy inexpressible for all eternity. Let's fix our eyes on that world until we enjoy it together in the kingdom. God in heaven, we're so easily distracted. The world has shiny things that that garner our attention. But your kingdom alone is worthy. So I pray that as we wander and meander as sojourners in this world, that you would absolutely fixate our gaze upon the world which is to come, the city that can never be shaken, the city with foundations whose designer and builder is God, and we long with all of our hearts for that day when we will be there and we will see Jesus face to face. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.